The following program is brought to you by Caltech. Um, so it's my pleasure today to introduce our speaker, Dr. Susan Smerker. Uh, Dr. Smerker is currently a principal research scientist and the outgoing deputy project scientist for the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, MRO. Um, she's currently working at JPL. And she's also the incoming deputy principal investigator and project scientist for the InSight mission to Mars. Um, originally, she grew up in Maine, received her bachelor's degree from Brown in geophysics and applied math, um, and then went, went on to graduate school and received her PhD in geophysics from the Southern Methodist University. Right now, her research focuses mainly on the volcanism, tectonism, gravity, and convection um, on both Venus and Mars. Um, and I didn't want to go into great detail about the numerous uh, awards and her great work she's done at JPL and NASA so far, but I also found it interesting that she was recently on um, a BBC documentary, actually, called Horizon that aired in June about the Venus transit uh, event that occurred on, in June 2012. Um, on that note, so I'd like to welcome Dr. Susan Smrecker, and we're very interested to hear you talk about Venus today. Thank you. Thanks a lot. So in our solar system, uh, Venus has gotten a bit of a bad reputation. You know, it has um, a surface temperature about 900 degrees Fahrenheit, hot enough to melt lead. It has uh, sulfuric acid clouds, uh, pressure nine times out of the Earth. So, um, you know, we're going to do a little psychoanalysis today and try to understand really does that mean it's an evil twin or perhaps it's just a bit misunderstood and maybe a bit more like Earth than we might otherwise give it credit for. So um, uh, before I get started, though, I wanted to give uh, credit to some people who have contributed to this talk. Uh, uh, Thomas Wittemann at the Observatoire de Paris um, has done a nice uh, uh, history of, the tr of transits of Venus in the, in, the space, in the age of telescopes. And uh, David Grinspoon, uh, a colleague who studies the climate of Venus, has also contributed. And um, in the end, I'm going to talk some about uh, my own research with uh, Christoph Sotem at uh, JPL. So um, I'm going to dive in. Um, okay, so uh, as part of this talk, you get to vote. You get to decide whether Venus is really evil or just misunderstood. So um, to uh, lay the groundwork, uh, we have Venus and Earth. Uh, and uh, Venus is only slightly smaller, about 5% smaller than the Earth. Uh, as a result, its mass is, mass is only slightly smaller, and its uh, escape velocity, the, the velocity needed to get something uh, to leave the, the atmosphere is only slightly smaller. Um, so, you know, based on this, you might say it's pretty much a twin of Earth. However, there are a few other factors we have to consider. Um, the pressure is 90 times greater, as I mentioned. The um, surface temperature is uh, pushing 500 degrees Celsius. Uh, much less water in the atmosphere and the surface. And, you know, you can... You can kind of get this message just from looking at the oceans on the Earth. And now Venus is, is shrouded in clouds, but uh, mostly not made of water. Um, and when we get to the interior, it has no magnetic field, unlike the Earth, and it has um, no plate tectonics, the system that uh, we're familiar with in the Earth where plates move around and create uh, fault zones and subduction zones. So it, it doesn't have, geologically, it's, it has a quite different system. So that's kind of where the evil part comes in. Um, okay, so, uh, and, you know, just to make this point, um, Earth has, at the surface and atmosphere, 100,000 times much 
uh, water as does the, uh, much, uh, 100,000 times less water than the Earth does. So um, this is an important point that has helped shape its evolution. And we'll come back to that point. Okay, so um, uh, to talk a little bit about the history of Venus, uh, you know, back in the uh, prehistoric times and in the uh, recent transits, uh, some of you may have um, been aware that there was a transit of, of Venus back in June. So um, I'll give a little bit of the historical view, and then I'll talk about the evil twin part, and this is uh, particularly relevant to its uh, runaway greenhouse, the, the, the force that has created the uh, surface temperature of almost 500 degrees. And then, then we'll talk about Venus on the inside, and in particular I want to talk about uh, evidence for recent volcanism and the implications of that volcanism for the interior. Um, this is a, a picture of the transit of Venus uh, taken from our local uh, Griffith, Griffith Observatory. So um, it, you, you may or may not know, but Venus is the uh, brightest planet in the sky. Uh, it's only, only the moon is brighter than, than Venus. And if you get up really early, you're an early riser, you can see Venus in the eastern sky, extremely bright currently. Um, and sometimes it's also the evening star, so sometimes it's um, up just after sunset. The Mayans were pretty much obsessed with Venus. They, they were you know, completely um, in the sway of Venus. Babylonians, uh, perhaps somewhat less so, but it was also a very important star planet for them, uh, important object in the sky. So, um, and also talk about uh, some of the history of um, study, the study of Venus using the telescope. Um, the first planetary atmosphere outside the Earth was uh, discovered on Venus, and the first estimate of the astronomical unit also came from studying uh, Venus. So, oh, I should, I should point out, these are um, some uh, Mayan uh, drawings from, from various uh, stone carvings, and uh, you can see Venus uh, in the process of slaying pretty much everything in its path. <laughs> so, um, Babylonians, okay, um, they also uh, showed in some of their... Um, hieroglyphics, uh, that they were very much um, interested in the study of Venus. Uh, they, they knew when it would appear in the same, sky, in the same place in the sky every eight years. Um, but the Mayans, as I said, were, pre were really obsessed with Venus. Um, in this uh, codex, uh, a section of which you see here, it goes on for you know, uh, 39 sheets, 4 meters, but it's really focused on Venus. And um, in some interpretations of these, um, these hieroglyph hieroglyphics, um, Venus is thought to be even more important to the Mayan mythology than the sun. So the Mayans you know, built temples and carefully tracked Venus's path. Um, they knew when it would appear um, every eight years. Um, and they, they timed many things to um, take place uh, during that time when uh, Venus would appear again in the sky, in the same place in the sky. They, the time when they would go to war, uh, you know, anything really important to them, they wanted to line it up with when they could see Venus again in the same place. Um, okay, so then if we move to the age of telescopes, um, I, I was really fascinated to find out that the first um, discovery of another atmosphere actually took place uh, 250 years ago, so in the transit that occurred back in uh, 1761. This uh, transit of Venus was predicted, and uh, this Russian astronomer uh, observed it from, from Siberia and uh, made very uh, careful drawings of the results. Um, and by seeing the uh, light refracted 
um, as the planet uh, started to cross the, the path of, or cross the face of the sun, uh, he was able to show that um, Venus has a fairly substantial atmosphere. So um, the next important discovery that came from a transit of Venus uh, was an estimate of the uh, astronomical unit. And, uh, you know, uh, Halley is better known for his study of comets, but he was actually, uh, you know, very uh, interested in the transits. And he called it the, uh, the noblest, um, this, uh, this site, which is by far the noblest astronomy affords, um, is denied to mortals for a whole century. So, unfortunately, Halley himself did not actually get to see this transit, but he was a big advocate for using the next predicted transit of Venus to um, estimate the distance between the Earth and the Sun. Um, so this kind of shows you the history of the, the predicted transits. They occur, they occur in these uh, eight-year uh, pairs, and then between those pairs, it's um, uh, a little, you know, on the order of 100 years, a little bit more. And um, so the, in, the, in the first one that was predicted, um, we saw the, you know, they were able to observe it before it was, it was seen. And then in the next one, they were able to discover the first um, atmosphere outside Earth. Um, and in, in the same one, we had um, an estimate of the astronomical unit. And uh, then when we had more precise clocks, we were able to get a much better estimate the next time. So here we are at the present um, transit. And you might think there's not a lot to be learned from transits. Um, but in fact, um, many people uh, made a point of observing this transit in order to get uh, some practice for observing exoplanets. Uh, may, probably many of you know that uh, the way in which, uh, the primary way in which exoplanets are uh, detected is by having them transit in front of their stars. And so, um, you know, in this case, we have a known star and a known planet. And so you can apply um, your, your methods that you would apply to unknown planets and stars and um, get some practice and see, you know, how well can we really reliably uh, estimate uh, the, the mass, the spectra, the, um, the orbit. So a number of people um, uh, spend time observing for that reason. And who knows, maybe they'll think of something interesting to do in the next transits. Um, I was lucky enough to uh, see the transit of Venus from Svalbard. There were two places that you could see the entire transit, uh, Tahiti and Svalbard. Uh, and this is a, an island that's part of Norway at around uh, 78, 79 north. And uh, this is what it looks like in June. Um, <laughs> uh, this, in fact, used to be a, a, a dormitory for miners, but um, they, they have it at, uh, done up as a, a nice guest house now. So um, we were able to see uh, the tr most of the transit there. Um, there are some bare patches of ground in June. And um, the clouds, for the most part, uh, cooperated. We were able to see the majority of the transit um, from this location, but it was observed from you know hundreds of sites, maybe more, all around all around the planet. And people are analyzing that data now, trying to um, better understand um, how how much we can learn from um, the study of exoplanets. Uh, this is this is uh, no doubt uh, out of date. In fact, uh, I uh, went to a, a lecture next door for the first half hour before I came over here. Uh, in the arms building uh, from the, the geosciences department. Um, and, uh, you know, Kepler has now found um, a, a number of planets that are in the size of the Earth. And in fact, uh, they found, uh, I think it's about a half dozen now, uh, planets that are both similar in size and density. They found many more that are similar in size, 
but um, most of them are much more dense than um, the Earth. A lot of them are, you know, very, very close to their star and, um, you know, extremely devoid of volatiles and, and extremely dense. And I guess they're the, uh, the term they, they use is they're roasters because they're all within inside the orbit of Mercury. So that's the, the, the vast number of um, planets are, are really, really close to, to their stars. And so, you know, in terms of a, a planet that is both in the right diameter range and um, in the same orbit, they really haven't found one yet. Um, but, uh, you know, these, these are a couple of examples that are in the right size range. And um, you can see that they have uh, given them somewhat characteristics reminiscent of uh, Venus and Earth in, in the artist's conception. Um, and, you know, today I, I'd sort of like to um, set the framework of, you know, we really need to be able to understand better how Venus and Earth evolve so differently if we really want to understand what to expect when we go and find uh, planets around other stars. Okay, so before we get to the space age, a little pre-space age um, view of, of Venus. Um, the New York Times uh, suggested that uh, both Earth and Venus would have life, and both uh, you know, scientists and science fiction writers uh, viewed Venus as likely to be a hot, steamy swamp and, uh, you know, Hollywood got into the action, too, with uh, Zsa Zsa Gabor as uh, the queen of outer space. So um, there was a lot of good, good material out there about Venus. But finally, we came to the, to the, um, uh, the space age, and um, I, I realized that, uh, in fact, there have been more missions sent to Venus than to Mars. You know, we, we forget this, but there have been a lot of missions sent to Venus. So, um, you know, the earliest one, uh, 50 years ago, Mariner 2 flew by Venus. And um, uh, then that was followed by uh, several um, NASA missions, the Pioneer Venus multiprobe that went into the atmosphere, um, the orbiter, which uh, looked at the topography. And then uh, the most recent mission that NASA has sent is um, the Magellan mission back in 1990, which did uh, radar and altimetry. And, and most of the data that I'll show you today um, comes for the, for the surface comes from this mission. Um, meanwhile, the Soviets were sending uh, many, many missions. Um, and they actually had uh, 10 landers that uh, went to the surface. A number of them, uh, three, of, three of them sent back, four of them sent back images of the surface. So, um, you know, there have been a huge number of missions that have, um, have gone to Venus. Uh, more successes than failures, actually. And, and uh, somebody looked up the statistic for Mars, and there have actually been more failures than successes in the, in the count of missions to Mars, and it's a fairly similar number. But uh, I'll also be talking about the most recent and current mission at Venus, uh, Venus Express, which is a European mission. And that's primarily uh, there to study the atmosphere, but um, it's also been able to see the uh, surface in a few limited windows. So, okay, today, uh, why study uh, Venus? Um, and this is where we'll talk a little bit about the, the climate and the evil twin part of the story. Um, so, uh, you know, unless you've been under a rock, you've probably seen a plot like this. Um, this is uh, carbon dioxide concentration and the uh, precipitous rise in the last number of decades. And so, um, you know, Venus is really very relevant to uh, society and the study of Earth today. And, you know, I like to view it as a laboratory for studying the Earth. It's not to say that Venus will ever have a runaway, or that Earth will ever have a runaway greenhouse, but by studying greenhouses in other places, we can learn something um, that is, is relevant to understanding greenhouses in general. 
Um, okay, so the atmosphere in Venus is actually uh, almost 70, 95% uh, carbon dioxide. And you know, this is just a, a schematic of how the greenhouse f- effect works. You have uh, radiation coming in from the sun. A lot of it is reflected um, at the different cloud layers on Venus. But um, a great deal of the energy coming in is trapped as um, thermal, thermal infrared um, uh, energy. So the, you know, the, sun, the surface of Venus is, has heated up in a dramatic way due to the fact that there's so much carbon dioxide and it's uh, so opaque in the infrared. And so, so much heat has been trapped in the lower uh, atmosphere. Um, this plot shows uh, altitude versus temperature on the surface. And um, we have uh, three curves for, for Mars, Venus, and Earth. And basically, any planet that has uh, any um, appreciable atmosphere will have some greenhouse effect. So on Mars, you know, the, the effect of the greenhouse is only on the order of you know, 5 or 10 degrees. For the Earth, it's perhaps a few uh, tens of degrees. Um, but for uh, Venus, you know, we have this huge effect, pushing 500 degrees for the effect of um, heating the atmosphere at the surface um, by the greenhouse. And uh, you'll notice a very interesting thing. Uh, if there were no greenhouses, you know, no greenhouse um, uh, trapping of the heat, uh, Venus would actually have a lower temperature than Earth, even though it's closer to the sun. The reason is the dense cloud cover on Venus. Uh, all of these clouds actually tend to reflect a fair amount of the, the solar radiation that's coming in, but, um, but vastly more of it is trapped down here at near the surface. Okay, so um, how did these two planets evolve so differently? Why does Venus have such an intense greenhouse and Earth does not? Okay, well, it's really a matter of a, a small distance between uh, Venus and Earth and their proximity to the sun. Basically, uh, you know, Venus is on the wrong side of the tracks with respect to the greenhouse effect. Um, and the result is a, a, possible, a powerful positive feedback, as illustrated by Jimi Hendrix. So um, the surface temperature uh, gets hotter on Venus. It's closer to the sun. It allows more water vapor to evaporate because you know, we, we believe that Venus actually likely had oceans early in its history. But over time, those oceans were lost. So when um, initially it, the surface temperature started to heat up um, due, due to just the atmospheric greenhouse, that um, increase in temperature allows more water vapor to um, go from the surface uh, solid phase into the gas. And uh, those uh, water clouds create greater infrared opacity, which in turn uh, increases the surface temperature. So you get this. Uh, positive uh, feedback loop. So um, as more and more water goes from the liquid phase on the surface into the atmosphere, um, at the top of the atmosphere, it allows the uh, hydrogen to escape. At the top of the atmosphere, the, um, uh, it, it, the um, photosynthesis, not photosynthesis, sorry, it, it breaks down, the hydrogen and the uh, oxygen break down at the top of the atmosphere into two molecules, and the hydrogen escapes um, because it's much lighter. It's, it's basically stripped off by the solar wind, the particles that are coming off the sun, and the oxygen remains behind. And we've been able to determine how much water has actually been lost this way um, b- due to the ratio of uh, hydrogen to deuterium. So basically the heavy hydrogen, the deuterium, is left behind. And so we know that a lot of water has already escaped off the atmosphere of Venus. So we know that in the past it had much more water than it does now. 
And, you know, in the atmosphere today, you know, there's uh, only uh, trace amounts, uh, you know, ppm amounts of water in the atmosphere. Okay, so um, how did uh, this radical change happen from uh, potentially early oceans on the surface of Venus to this uh, baked, hot condition today? Um, to, to understand how this came about so differently on Venus versus the Earth, I have to go back in time. And this shows the uh, sequence for uh, a star like our, like our sun. And early in its history, it's actually uh, much less bright. And over time, it, uh, it will, the luminosity increases until we get to this point where we are today. Um, and so we have what's known as the uh, faint young par- sun paradox. Um, and this is illustrated here. that They have uh, solar luminosity relative to the present value. So here we are today. And um, the predicted uh, luminosity of the sun as we go back towards the uh, beginning of our solar system four and a half billion years ago. So four and a half billion years ago, it was uh, you know, only at about um, 0.73 or 0.72 of its current uh, luminosity. And then if we look at the, the temperature, um, we see that uh, for, the, for the first couple billion years of, of Earth's history, well, sorry, sorry, this is the freezing point of water, and these two lines show you the um, temperature of the surface given the greenhouse effect, the temperature of the surface with no greenhouse effect. And this is assuming uh, Earth's present-day atmospheric composition. So um, if we had uh, the current atmospheric composition all the way back to the beginning of uh, Earth's history, uh, the first couple billion years of that history should have been um, one in which the planet was entirely frozen. There would have been no liquid water. Um, and we know from the geologic record, from isotopes, that this is not the case. So we know that Earth was not frozen um, early in its history. So why not? Why, why was it not so frozen as, as, we, as we would predict based on the luminosity? And the answer is that the greenhouse effect was actually stronger early in Earth's history than it is today. So we know that the atmosphere must have been different than in, in an Earth's early history than today. Um, and uh, what we believe is the case is that it was actually more carbon dioxide early on. Um, so um, the, uh, the Earth is an extremely fortunate place to live because it actually has a thermostat. And that thermostat is in the form of uh, this carbonate silicate cycle. Um, basically, when you have uh, rainwater falling to the, the ground, you have carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, and you have uh, silicate rocks at the surface, these three components, the water, the carbon dioxide, and the, the calcium uh, silicate rocks, um, have a weathering effect, and they release ions of calcium um, and um, uh, hydrogen plus carbon, and then you have the silicate rock left over. And these ions end up in the ocean water eventually. And again, they go through a chemical reaction with the water, and you end up producing uh, calcium carbonate. Now, a lot of this calcium carbonate uh, gets uh, trapped in the shells of you know, small, small uh, critters in the ocean um, that uh, produce lots of, of shells and will fall to the uh, bottom of the ocean. And eventually, get that uh, carbonate will be, will be um, squashed and, and uh, turned into rock, uh, you know, uh, limestones and, and other uh, carbonate rocks. Now, even if there were no uh, um, organisms in the ocean to uh, produce those shells, you would still get carbonate precipitating it and forming in the ocean. So 
one way or another, through the help of organisms or without organisms, this, this calcium carbonate will precipitate out and end up in the bottom of the ocean. And eventually, that, uh, we know from plate tectonics that these oceanic plates will be carried along and subducted. So the Earth basically has this mechanism of sequestering carbon dioxide. And not only that, it ends up um, having a, uh, a regulator. So when the climate is hotter, you're going to get more rainfall. And that uh, process of having more rainfall will allow more car carbon dioxide to be taken out of the atmosphere. And when the climate is cooler, that rainfall slows down, and not so much of the carbon dioxide is being locked away. And I, and I should have said also that the carbon dioxide is constantly being resupplied by volcanoes. So you know, constantly we have CO2 coming out of the interior. Um, but, but it, and so it just matters what the rate at which it's being locked away versus the way, rate that it's coming out. And when the Earth is totally frozen over, no liquid water, then um, the carbon dioxide is not being uh, locked away in rocks, and it's all going into the atmosphere. You have the, uh, the volcanoes are winning out when the Earth is frozen over. So this is great. We don't have to worry about uh, global warming, right? Um, it's great if we can hang around for half a billion years, because that's the, the time scale over which this mechanism can uh, cause equilibrium. So um, you know, it's great in the time scale of the Earth, not so great in the time scale of people. OK. So Venus, what happened? Um, basically, this thermostat uh, broke down and was not able to regulate temperature on Venus. Um, you know, as I said, as Venus started to heat up, the, um, the clouds became thicker, more uh, water went into the atmosphere. And as that water was um, stripped off in the form of hydrogen and oxygen at the top of the atmosphere, uh, we ended up with no liquid water on Venus, no silicate weathering, and um, all, of the, all of the volcanic gas uh, going into the atmosphere. So um, it, you know, Venus lost its oceans and was not able to um, maintain this balance. Just a, a bit of an aside here. Um, given that uh, Venus has this intense uh, temperature at the surface, uh, can we actually learn anything about astrobiology from, for Venus? And you know, the answer is yes. Um, we can understand that life may have existed in the distant past, um, at a time when oceans could have been stable on the surface. Um, and there's even uh, talk that it could be, uh, there could be life in, in the form of uh, microbes in the clouds today. Uh, the temperature and pressure in the cloud level uh, on Venus is uh, similar to that on the surface of the Earth. So um, you know, the conditions, at least in a limited environment, are... Uh, potentially compatible with there being uh, life today. Um, and it, it definitely informs um, the future of life on Earth. It informs um, you know, how, um, really how unique Earth is in terms of its ability to regulate things on the very long timescales. Um, and perhaps most importantly, it redefines our understanding of what does habitability mean. You know, we're finding all of these exoplanets at different distances from different sized stars. And uh, you, you may or may not have seen a, a diagram like this. This is the, the mass of the star relative to uh, our own sun and the um, distance of planets uh, relative to Earth. And um, for some time, the habitable zone has been this uh, area here, where if it's a smaller star, it's uh, closer in than the Earth and further out if it's a larger star. But um, we have to really think about the fourth dimension of habitability which is um, time. Because earlier in the evolution of the solar system, both Earth and Mars were likely more habitable. 
Um, they were, uh, you know, we certainly know that, that water flowed in the surface of Mars, and the isotopic evidence for Venus suggests that it, um, well, we definitely had much more water, and it likely would have had oceans as well. Okay, so um, this is part three of the talk. And um, uh, the volcanism really provides a link between understanding the interior and the atmosphere. Um, this is a, a cartoon, but um, a lot of uh, volcanism on Earth, and, and uh, at least some of the volcanism on Venus, uh, occur in these uh, zones that are called hotspots, and I'll define this a little bit more in a minute. But um, we have the, the core of the Earth, the mantle, and the lithosphere. The mantle convex, the lithosphere is the solid part that doesn't convect. And um, in areas like Hawaii, you have uh, hot stuff coming up from the interior, and uh, producing uh, volcanoes at the surface. And those volcanoes, as we've been discussing, give off these uh, gases. So um, these really form the link between you know, studying how the uh, atmosphere evolves, how the surface geology changes over time, and in, at least in some cases, um, how the volcanism is related to what's going on in the interior. OK, so um, what we would really love to know is what the history of volcanism has been on the surface of Venus. Uh, we'd like to know, you know, when did it occur, and in what volume, at what time period. Unfortunately, uh, Venus is not revealing that. Uh, Venus has only 1,000 impact craters, and this is a, a Magellan radar image. So uh, the, the black, dark areas are smooth, and the bright areas, these impact craters, are very rough, uh, and thus bright in the radar. Um, and these 1,000 impact craters are really too few to provide uh, ages of the different regions on Venus. If you look at the craters on Mars, there's a huge density, probably hundreds of thousands of craters on Mars. And so um, it's quite easy on Mars to take uh, the density of the craters and uh, provide an age for, uh, for even relatively small um, locations on Mars. On Venus, um, we simply can't do that. And another thing you'll notice is that uh, these craters are pretty much equally distributed over the surface. On Mars, is a big density, uh, higher density in the south and in the north. But on Venus, it's pretty much um, equally distributed, which, again, doesn't help us in terms of distinguishing the age of one area from another. Um, so basically, all we're able to get out of the um, impact crater data is that the age of the surface is about uh, 700 million years, plus or minus 300 million. And the other uh, very interesting thing about this population of craters is that most of them are not modified. Most of them are in red. A few of them are tectonized, and a few of them are embayed. So um, the vast majority of them are actually quite pristine. So uh, they look something like this, whereas there are only a few of them that are modified, in this case, by volcanism. So um, these two observations, that one, that we can't distinguish the population from a spatially random one, and that there have been little modifications modification of craters led to this idea that uh, Venus catastrophically resurfaced. Uh, if you had um, more equilibrium resurfacing, you might expect that there would be sort of a, an equal number of um, modified craters and uh, pristine craters. But that's, that's not what was seen. And um, you know, this idea that Venus could have been sort of very rapidly covered in volcanism or otherwise could have uh, raised its craters um, 
is an intriguing idea. You know, you, you get to, as a geophysicist, you get to try to come up with really weird ideas of how the planet could have completely uh, wiped out its surface. And um, if it was, if the craters, past craters were wiped out by volcanism um, in a very, uh, you know, huge pulse of volcanism in a relatively short amount of time, that would have huge climatic effects. And people have modeled um, the possible implications of, um, you know, a, a, a kilometer of volcanism over the entire planet in, say, you know, 10 million years, um, and have found that it would suggest that the surface temperature could have changed by hundreds of degrees. And in fact, uh, that if you then try to look at the effect of those temperature changes on the surface, you know, you can, those temperature changes are large enough to produce fractures uh, over much of the surface. So, um, you know, if this really happened, it, it really tells us that Venus has been um, dramatically different in its, both its geology and its climate from the Earth. Now, the problem is that we, when we really uh, try to, to model this process, um, a variety of models fit the data. So the catastrophic resurfacing model does fit the data, and that's illustrated here. So um, the red is a resurfacing patch. So in this model, everything completely covers over in one fell swoop, uh, geologically speaking. And then the impact craters are laid down. Um, but if you also uh, take an equilibrium resurfacing model, and over a billion years, you... Uh, put down bits of volcanism and craters um, so that they're basically occurring in equilibrium, that model will also fit the population of craters that we have. Um, and similarly, you can have a model in which the volcanism occurs in one patch at one time, and another patch at another time, and then another patch somewhere else, um, and the impact craters are constantly being put down. And all three of these models will fit the data. Um, now, I have a, a preference, a bias here, I'll, I'll tell you, and, and that's um, based on some other studies that try to take in uh, more of the geologic record into account. And uh, there are, in fact, not just the impact craters, but these huge uh, parabolas um, that are associated with the impact craters. Some of them, you know, they extend for 1,000 kilometers. And what they, um, how they form is that uh, when the crater forms, very fine-scale particles are lofted into the atmosphere and carried downwind. And so those fine-grain uh, particles form these parabolas on, on, the other si on each side of, um, or surrounding an, every impact crater. And over time, those parabolas are eroded away. So I, I don't really have time to go into that whole story today, but if you also factor in how these parabolas are being eroded and where they're being eroded, um, by what processes, um, you know, I think it is more consistent with this type of model, where you have little patches, and that the uh, parabolas seem to be uh, being eroded away in little, in little patches. So it's not necessarily proof, but I think it, it points towards this uh, model being um, favored, in my opinion. It's a very highly debated topic. People are very passionate about this. So you know, I'm trying to give you both sides. Um, OK, so. Um, I want to talk about the evidence for recent volcanism. And when I say recent, I mean geologically recent, so you know, within the last million years or so. Um, and that's primarily, primarily coming from this uh, European mission that's at Venus. And from that, um, we have surface emissivity. Uh, one of the spectrometers can uh, see to the atmosphere, through the atmosphere um, at around one micron, and is seeing the surface temperature. Um, one thing that's very interesting about this uh, recent volcanism is that it only occurs at hotspots, um, areas like Hawaii and the Earth. And because, you know, these, um, because in that setting, 
the volcanism is, is care, you know, directly linked to the interior, it's also telling us something about the interior dynamics of um, Venus. So we'll sort of evaluate again whether that means it's more Earth-like or not. Okay, this is um, data from the uh, Venus Express mission, and this is uh, surface emissivity. Basically, emissivity is a measure of how heat is emitted from, uh, in this case, from a rock. And that's a function of two things, its temperature and its composition. Um, and in terms of composition, for, for rocks, it's primarily um, how much iron they contain. So um, in order to get this map, you have to uh, take the, the um, uh, spectral measurements at one micron and try to remove the effects of the atmosphere. So you have to you know, go to some lengths to uh, remove the effects of the clouds that, that tend to filter this, this um, signature from the surface. And you also have to take out the topographic effects. Um, on Venus, um, because of this very dense uh, layer of clouds, there are essentially no surface temperature variations, no annual surface temperature variations, no diurnal temperature va variations. Um, really, the only temperature variations are a, a function of altitude. And so you know, there are differences of about uh, 10 kilometers on the surface. And you have, so you have some um, temperature variations just as a function of altitude. So those effects were taken out. And that leaves us um, with this map. So um, the red are the high emissivity anomalies, and the blue are low emissivity anomalies. And the low anomalies are a really interesting story, but for another day. Um, and so I, I want to focus on just a few of these um, uh, surface anomalies um, that are the highest ones. And uh, you, there are high ones out here, but the data gets more and more ratty as you go away from this side of the map just due to the number of observations. So these ones aren't really regarded as being um, realistic. So it turns out that um, all of these uh, high emissivity anomalies correlate with uh, areas that are like Hawaii. They have um, a broad topographic swell. Um, and I'm going to focus on these three regions, Imdur, Themis, and Dione. And on top, you have both uh, topography in meters and uh, superimposed is the radar imaging. So um, there are three broad topographic swells, and um, at the bottom are their emissivity anomalies. So you can see that uh, a number of the topographic highs have these high emissivity anomalies, but not all of them. So um, in this case, there, there's this one primary volcano. In the other case, there are um, a number of volcanoes as, as well as um, these corona features. So um, they are actually thought to be uh, sort of smaller scale plumes, but, um, but in any case, they do produce volcanism. And then in Dione, there's just a couple of volcanoes. So um, what's interesting about these areas is that uh, based on the Magellan mission and their topography, their geologic setting, and their gravity data, we had previously identified those as areas where we think there's a hot plume at depth. So they, you know, in many characteristics, they're analogous to um, Hawaii. Um, so those had, pr had previously been identified as likely to be active. Um, but now with the emissivity, uh, at these youngest flows, um, uh, and, and stratigraphically, where the emissivity anomalies occur, they, they occur with the, the stratigraphically youngest flows. And we've interpreted them as uh, fresh, unweathered flows. So hopefully this will start up here. Um, OK, so this is the um, uh, topography and the radar. And this is a particular uh, volcano at Imdur Regio. And um, Iden Mons. And so you can see uh, bright flows coming off the side. This is one of these small scale upwellings, Corona. 
And this now superimposes the emissivity. And so you can see that this anomaly is sort of um, correlated with this flow that comes off in one direction, one of the brighter flows, and sits really um, on the flank of this uh, one volcano. Um, and I, I should say that we interpret, there, there are basically two possible ways to interpret this data. One, that these are actually uh, hot, li literally hot flows on the surface. And two, that their composition is different. And we believe that it's not likely that they are hot flows because um, this data was acquired over about a year and averaged together over a year. And from what we know on the Earth about how lava flows behave, it's very unlikely that a flow was erupting continuously for that long and had a very high surface temperature um, for that long because once a flow forms, you know, very rapidly it crusts over and it no longer has a temperature anomaly at the surface. So it, although we can't entirely rule that out, we think it's unlikely that they're actually physically hot flows. Thus, we interpret them as having a different composition, indicating that they were um, unweathered at the surface. Okay, so um, just to, to give you a, um, a picture of how weathering proceeds on the Earth, um, this is a, a flow in Hawaii, and this flow uh, stopped minutes before I took this picture. And you know, if you've ever seen a, a freshly erupted basaltic flow, it's just this incredibly gorgeous, uh, you know, looks like liquid silver, um, and it's this very glassy uh, surface. But very rapidly, it starts to interact with the atmosphere. So you know, even hours. Uh, go by, and it will start to lose this beautiful sheen. And you know, in, within days, uh, it's hard to tell uh, a recently erupted flow from one that's you know maybe a year old. Um, now, this is not the same chemical process that happens on Venus, of course, because there's no water in the atmosphere. Um, but it just shows you sort of how rapidly flows can uh, change their composition from you know how they're erupted uh, at the surface, you know, because they, they come out at you know, over a thousand degrees, and so they're not really in equilibrium with the atmosphere and, and the surface temperature and pressure, so they very rapidly undergo a chemical alteration. Okay, so just to give you um, a, a, a little bit more picture of how hotspots form, um, they, they arise at this um, thermal boundary layer near the core mantle boundary. Um, a, a plume um, rises through the mantle and uh, creates a, a broad topographic swell. As I was saying, and and you know, so this is on the scale of uh, over a thousand kilometers, whereas the volcanoes themselves are you know are much smaller, tens of kilometers. Um, and one thing that's very interesting about uh, having core, uh, having plumes present is that it tells you that you know heat is coming out of the core. You need to have um, this boundary layer at the edge of the core to give rise to plumes, and uh, that tells us that. Um, there should be um, a fair amount of heat coming out of the core. And uh, the formation of a dynamo, the magnetic field, um, has been linked to uh, having heat coming out of the core and um, uh, thus driving convections. Because if there's no heat coming out of the core, there's no temperature change, and you're less likely to have convection in the interior. So um, uh, it's, it's, in fact, kind of puzzling that we have um, a planet where there's no dynamo, yet we have plumes. So you know, it's sort of challenging our understanding of how these two processes are linked. Um, and this, uh, just just to um, you know, put in perspective uh, the importance of plumes. You know, on the Earth, um, of course, we have plate tectonics, and hot stuff is coming up from the interior and forming 
the mid-ocean ridges and new, new uh, lithosphere all the time. That uh, lithosphere is being taken back into the interior at subduction zones. So, you know, plate tectonics forms a very uh, efficient mechanism for cooling the interior of a planet. Um, heat is lost also through, through these plumes and these hotspot-like features, but it's not nearly as efficient as a system of plate tectonics. Um, about maybe on the order of 10% of heat from the interior is lost via these isolated plumes. Much more is lost through the formation of new crust and uh, subduction. So, you know, this is, this is a very efficient system. Um, on, without plate tectonics, if you have a, a planet that's convecting, it's referred to as a stagnant lid planet. Um, there are no plates moving around, um, and there, there are probably no um, subduction zones going back into the interior, as, as in this cartoon. You may have some little blobs, cold blobs, that will come off the bottom of the cold lithosphere, but it's, it's not going to be as an efficient process for cooling the interior as when you have you know, giant plates going back into the interior. So um, for this reason, we expect that uh, on a planet without plate tectonics, that the interior is going to be hotter. Um, and, uh, you know, in terms of what we see on the overall pattern of tectonics on the, on the surface of Venus, uh, this, is, this is, again, uh, radar and altimetry. Um, what we see is that um, there are vol- essentially volcanism everywhere. No system of ridges, no system of subducting slabs, but all kinds of different volcanic features. And I've only, you know, shown you a small fraction of them here. Um, from Magellan data and from the gravity topography, we um, thought that there were about 10 hotspots previously. Um, and these red ones are the ones that have been observed in the uh, emissivity data. Whereas these are um, in the northern hemisphere, and sadly we have no emissivity data for the northern hemisphere, nor are we going to get any. Um, uh, but these are the, the family of hotspots that have been observed to date. Um, and I'll just make the point also that we believe that there are two scales of upwelling. You know, in addition to these major scale features, we have 500 um, corona. And uh, these are shown in the red dots and the white crosses. So these, I, uh, I don't have time to show you all the, the weird characteristics of these features, but they're on the order of a few hundred kilometers across. And we think they primarily form as a result of smaller scale blobs coming up from the interior, as opposed to these larger scale plumes that form the, the broad topographic swells. But in addition, you, you can see all these large flow fields, which are you know, hundreds of kilometers long. And beyond that, there are hundreds of volcanoes that are um, you know, 100, to clam- 100 kilometers or more in diameter. So everywhere volcanism. Um, OK, so to talk a little bit more about um, plumes and what it means to have a plume um, in the interior. OK, I, I, was, I was telling you that you, know, you need to have some uh, heat flow coming out of the core and forming a boundary layer to give rise to a plume. Um, so, you know, it's a bit, like I was saying before, it's a bit of a paradox that we have no dynamo, yet we have plumes on Venus. Um, and so, you know, actually what we expect to form, what we had, would have expected in a stagnant lid is that this, um, this thick lithosphere acts as an insulating blanket and it tends to uh, allow the mantle to actually heat up um, and as the mantle heats up, you know, the, the boundary layer is going is to shrink. And in fact, you know, if it heats up enough, there will be no boundary layer. The mantle will end up being the same temperature as the surface of the core. So you know, if, if the mantle is hot enough, if this acts as a, a good enough insulator at the surface, um, you shouldn't get any plumes at all forming. So 
There we go. Um, and, um, you know, before uh, this data uh, was um, uh, produced, before these observations, um, there had been a, a theory proposed um, that uh, suggested that the large-scale plumes, the hotspots we see um, on Venus, well, we see on the Earth, um, are um, part of the overall plate tectonic system in that, you know, even on the Earth, even where we have uh, dynamo, we have, um, you know, a, a clear thermal boundary layer between the, the core and the mantle, it's pretty hard still to form plumes. And people had, because you need a, a good temperature difference across this boundary layer. And so even on the Earth, it's a little bit dicey to, in a model to predict that these plumes will form. So um, uh, people had suggested, well, maybe what's really going on is that you have subduction, you have cold material ponding at this boundary, and that um, uh, contrast between the cold slabs and the hot, and the hot areas actually allows uh, plumes to form on Earth. Whereas um, on Venus, without the subduction, people suggest that you just have these cold drips coming down, and you end up having these smaller little blobs that form the corona, the small scale, 100 kilometers or so um, upwellings. Um, so uh, in, that, in that context of how do you get plumes to form even on the Earth, and what happens when you don't have subduction, um, uh, this, this model suggested that the uh, hotspots that we see on Venus had actually formed in a previous regime when Venus may have had plate tectonics early in its history, and whereas the smaller scale upwellings uh, were forming today. So that, you know, that these two types of upwellings were not forming in the same geologic regime. Um, so, you know, a, a, but as we see from um, the emissivity data, we see evidence that both these large scale upwellings are active and that the smaller scale uh, upwellings are also active. And, um, I'll, I'll show you a little bit of an example of that. Um, actually, no, I'm going to go back for one second and show you that example. Oh, yeah. So basically, in this Themis region, there are a number of these corona. So um, you know, in Dione, there's just volcanoes. Imdur, there's just one volcano. But um, in Themis, there are these ton of um, corona, about uh, 12 of those. So in this area, it's a combination of these uh, many small-scale upwellings that's producing this feature. Okay, so I'll get back to where I was. Okay, so um, even on the Earth, there's been a lot of debate over the last couple of decades about uh, the sources of volcanism. Uh, you know, maybe 25 years ago, anytime you had a volcano, people thought, okay, volcano, plume from the interior, um, you know, we understand this process. But um, as seismology has moved forward, the understanding of what's going on in the interior um, and the resolution of seismology has improved, there's been um, a lot of um, uh, you know, soul searching about what's really producing volcanism. And there are, um, this, this is one interpretation, there are others, but this is one interpretation of how uh, different scales of volcanism form. And you have uh, these large plumes, um, or plumes that can, that can travel all the way through the mantle um, and, and reach the surface, or reach, come close to the surface. So areas like uh, Hawaii, where the plume travels all the way uh, until it hits the lithosphere. Um, and in, in this model, I haven't, I haven't uh, shown you this complexity before, but there's actually a phase uh, boundary between the upper mantle and the lower mantle. So the idea is that some of them can cruise right through this phase transition and um, make it to the bottom of the sphere, whereas others end up um, ponding um, at the base of this transition and creating smaller scale upwellings um, 
that, uh, give, ri that give rise to these small-scale features. Because even um, in, in our oceans, we see small-scale volcanoes that are thought to be uh, linked to small plumes. Um, so that's this sort of medium scale. And then, uh, you know, there, and then there are other sources of volcanism besides just plumes coming from the interior. Uh, if you extend the lithosphere you know, through plate tectonic motions, you can also get uh, material coming up from depth and causing volcanic eruptions. So you know, on the Earth, we've realized that there are, there are many more sources of volcanism than simply plumes coming from the core mantle boundary. But in terms of those that are believed to come from the core mantle boundary, there are about 10. OK, so um, my, my colleague, Ellen Sofan, and I um, thought that this was actually quite a good model to apply to what we were seeing um, on Venus. And so you know, in, in this paper um, uh, some years ago, we suggested that um, a number of features like Dione were areas where you had uh, the plume coming all the way through, and you produced a broad topographic swell. And areas like um, Themis Regio are areas where you might have uh, these, these plumes getting sort of stuck partway through the mantle and giving rise to smaller scale features. So when we saw the Themis data, data, we were very happy about this. We thought it pretty much you know, was a good, good way towards proving our hypothesis. OK, so, um, so that uh, gives us some insight into what's going on into the interior of Venus, but um, it doesn't really tell us anything about the resurfacing. And the answer is um, not really. Um, you know, I, I think it is most consistent with this model, but it's still somewhat of an open question. OK, so um, what is it telling us about Venus today? Um, it, it's active. It's the only other terrestrial planet that's volcanically active today. It suggests but doesn't prove ongoing resurfacing. And it's just that Venus and Earth are um, similar in, in some important ways. They have 10 large plumes. They both have small plumes. And it shows that at least on Venus, you don't need um, subduction to get plumes. And perhaps the same is true for Earth. So here's our report card. How are we doing? Is it evil or misunderstood? OK, I think the greenhouse definitely is, gives it in the evil category. And no oceans. Recent volcanism, to me, suggests it's more Earth-like Earth -like than we might have thought. And the fact that it has the same number of plumes coming from the core mantle boundary is a really intriguing fact. Two scales of, of plumes, I think, also makes it somewhat Earth-like. And regional resurfacing. Well, of course, I, I can't prove this, but I think it's most likely that it's going on today. Um, so uh, quickly to uh, wrap up, what's going on for the um, next step in Venus exploration? Um, we had this call for small-scale missions in 2010. A uh, quarter of those uh, proposed uh, were for Venus. So there's a big um, you know, groundswell of interest in going back to Venus. It's been you know, 30 years since there was a significant amount of activity there. Um, and there's also, uh, in the uh, decadal survey, the overview of um, next steps in planetary science, there was a call for a um, lander on the surface, this uh, surface and atmospheric geochemical explorer. That was also uh, proposed in the last call. None of these made it, but people will keep trying. Um, and I think, I think that's it. I'll wrap it up. Here's Venus in the night sky. So thanks very much. This program is brought to you by Caltech. Visit us at caltech.edu.